Hey, it's Coach Colette. Did you know that July is BIPOC Mental Health Month? It was formally recognized in June 2008 and was originally called the B.B. Moore Campbell National Minority Mental Health Awareness Month. And it's designed to bring awareness to the unique struggles that historically excluded groups face when it comes to mental illness and mental health care in the U.S. And I can think of none other than Chandra Roxanne, who works with the Community Healing Network as a great person to talk about this issue. And that's exactly just what we're doing in this Coach Chat episode. She talks about the Community Healing Network, and they host Ubuntu Healing Circles, where Black people can come together and talk about what's ailing them, not just externally, but what's going on inside. These healing circles are safe spaces for Black bodies, minds, and spirits. They also host a series of emotional healing circles that were developed in partnership with the Association of Black Psychologists, which are grounded in African psychology, spirituality, and value-based systems. And why it's so great to be sharing this episode in July is because it's important to focus on the fact that traditional mental health care solutions do not take into account all of the affirming, self-affirming healing practices that exist within Black, Brown, Indigenous, and other communities. These tools, systems, practices are valid and they are valuable choices that people of color can make to support their own mental health and well-being. And so this conversation with Chandra is all about this. She also shares her personal journey in how she was able to overcome negative stereotypes that she had internalized while growing up as a young black woman and how she has been able to channel her energy into supporting other black people to heal and to thrive. Finally, we talk about the lie of white superiority and black inferiority. This is the lie on which white supremacy rests. And when you start pulling on that thread, you can start to rewrite negative and stereotypical narratives, dispel myths. So get ready, buckle up for this Coach Chat episode with Chandra Roxanne of Community Healing Network. My own my own journey to this because one of the things that I have that I've uh, we've talked about a lot is like I have a stake in this like I have my own personal stake um, in this and how like I I actually came about to discover CHN. Um, Got it. So maybe the first question is yes, um, Chandra, what drew you to the Community Healing Network? Well, what's interesting is that probably in 2018, well, so I left my job. Um, at the end of or mid 2017 and ended up going to Europe, right. To sort of like think about my life and find myself and things like that. And, um, I, one of the things that I was wrestling with was this, this, this narrative that I never wanted to be a part of. And that is that I'm a black person. I'm a black woman. I always thought of myself as a woman. My name is Chandra. And because I share, um, lineage, both from the native American it's the particularly the Piscataway Indian nation of Southern Maryland, but also as a descendant of those slaves, and then also a descendant of uh, Europe because of the 
what would, would you want to say the raping that was going on of um, African women. And so for me, I, my entire, like nothing in my world seemed to reflect me as who I was like nothing in, when it comes, when it came to black culture, um, just nothing that I, I resonated with nothing. I, I didn't see anything um, for a very, very, very long time. So this is why I was always about, I'm Chandra Roxanne. And um, I lent more to sort of the spiritual aspects that, you know, are really indicative to the Native American culture. But when I came back from Europe, I, I was like, that was the one thing that I, I had to wrestle with and really, really understand. Um, my place, my ancestral lineage in this narrative. And it came because I had a thought that I would have passed the brown paper bag test. And that just sort of blew everything open to me. And I remember when I returned, there was this, um, this exhibition, excuse me, this exhibit at a local museum called The Rise and the Fall of the N-Word. And it was a commissioned piece. Um, the, 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 the main artist was a Black man, but he commissioned work from artists all over the world. And so it, it was really interesting to be um, faced with the American view of that word and the international view of that word. And the, the one stipulation is that the, the artist could not use Black and white. And the artist talked about how that was very difficult for the American artists, very difficult for them to stay away from those two colors. And it happened to be a, a weekend event. So I went all three days because each day they had a different um, event inside of the museum. And the last event, they had a conversation, a community conversation that was facilitated by local, a local psychologist. And um, we were broken off into these small groups. And there was just this one picture that was just, man, it, it made me want to scream because it was, it was all blue as a water picture. And it was uh, a picture of a African woman in, she was on the ocean floor dead. She was also pregnant. So you saw inside of her belly and that child being dead. And she still had the chains on her hands and her feet. And Oh, in the distance, you could see these dark bodies falling into the water itself. Yeah. And so it, and it just, you know, it just really arrested me because I thought, you know, we are still to this day. One of the like one of the things that I mentioned in my group is that to this day, we as African, as black women are still regarded as trash, something that you discard, even our children. And so, um, you know, I did a lot of wrestling, you know, with that, that particular piece, but then that whole idea of the rise and fall of the N-word and my, again, my own space, my, like, the space that I refuse to occupy, but that I have within this narrative. Um, and at the time I was uh, unemployed uh, and rightfully, so it was, a, it was my first year that I like, actually took off and, um, just didn't work and had a lot of time to reflect. And someone passed me this job and said, you know, this came across my desk and I just thought of you. I just thought of you. And so they said, you know, can I, you know, tell them to contact you? And I said, sure. And they, they taught me a little bit about it, but um, it wasn't until I actually received like an information in the website that I thought, wow, this is a real sign for me to continue down this work on personal work, but then join the effort you know, be a part of the narrative, but be a part of the dismantling of one narrative and a remaking of another narrative um, to take up a, a role that I was not willing to do and perhaps even unprepared to do prior to that moment. Wow, there's just so much in there to unpack. And I want to thank you so much for sharing your story about that and the the rise and fall of the inward was the mm -hmm. exhibition and that's so interesting when you think of inner work right like our yes. inner work and how sometimes we are receptive to doing it and other times we are not receptive to mm -hmm. doing that and i also heard about intersectionalities right the the different identities that we all have and 
I think that that image is just so powerful. I, I'm still sitting with that. Like I can't even, I can't even fully process that. I'm going to have to think about that a little bit um, with that, that yeah. image, but so, so what is it that you then are doing with people who are coming through the network or interacting with the network? Yeah. So one of the things that I, uh, I think I've, Honestly, I've sort of stumbled on sort of, you know, the thing that I'm, I feel as though I'm good at. Um, and, you know, I, I host the he a Healing Circle series. Actually, um, I started hosting Healing Circles, Ubuntu Healing Circles in uh, 2020, actually. It was, you know, when the year that COVID started. And um, they're, they're simply circles where Black women and Black men, they're co-ed right now, where we just come together and we we really talk about, we take off our mask and we really talk about the issues that are ailing us, not simply the external issues that are ailing us, but also the inter issues between us that are ailing us. I mean, we've had, it's been really powerful. We've had, you know, women of one generation apologizing to the women of the the, the, the younger generation saying, we did not do you well. You know, we did not prepare you or we, did, we didn't do our job to make this better for you. And, you know, younger generations saying, we accept that, but we also understand the pressure you were under. And so why don't we work together? I mean, we've had men come and just ball, just ball, um, because we, we define these spaces as safe spaces for Black bodies, minds, and spirits. And we're very adamant that these are Black-only spaces. They're Black-only. Yeah. And I, I wanted to, I'm glad that you raised that issue. And I wanted you to talk a little bit more about why it's so mm -hmm. important to have those safe black only spaces. You know, it's funny. Um, one of just recently, one of the members of our our newest series. So we have a new series now called An Emotional Lunch Break. And we literally have it at 1230 so that people can step away from their jobs, come be, come be refreshed, and then go back into that space. And we had one woman, she came in and at the very first meeting, and she's like, if I see, and this was this was um the day that um our young brother was was murdered, and I'm blanking on his name. Um I think he might've been 14 or 15 years old. And she just came in and she, she was just bawling. And she literally said, I'm triggered just by seeing a white face. And that reminded me of this, this young black girl. She might've been like six years old, six or seven years old. And this, the, she saw a police officer and just bawled, just started bawling. And I just, and it reminded me that, you know, one of the reasons that we need black only spaces is because of this sort of tr being just triggered by the presence of your oppressor being triggered not, and not just your oppressor but your murderer being triggered by that just just by their like just being in that presence and so when you think about what happens physiologically to being triggered and emotionally to being triggered you actually do need a space where your body is like, oh, is resting and can feel safe. It's interesting that um, I, you know, I've been watching this, this series called Underground and one of the characters says in, in there, um, safety, a sense of safety transforms the spirit. And what we find, Colette, when, when black people have come together in these black only spaces, you should, I mean, this just the beauty that comes out of us, the sheer beauty, the humanity that oozes out, that cannot ooze and cannot be expressed outside of the space in its fullness. I mean, we had um, at our most recent meeting, we have this one brother who he just has a gift for words and poetry. And so he's taking in um, what's, you know, we're, we talked about Black joy. And he's just taking in like all these different expressions of black joy. And in the moment, he may, he writes this poem customized for us and offers that as an offering to us. I mean, to be, to be nourished by blackness 
and to have your own blackness grow and flourish in the company of other other black people is just so wonderful but also these spaces allow us to practice how do we be black women and black men how do we be brothers and sisters how do we be kings and queens how do we just be with one another and that practice that practice for the muscles and the mind and the body and the cells that practice is so very important for what we are able to do outside of the space and how we're able to navigate the other spaces. So well said, so expertly said, thank you for that. And, I, and I've often said, always has been important. And during these months, year plus of the pandemic, almost even more so because with Zoom and all of the other virtual platforms, we're bringing that into our homes. We're bringing that into our personal space, right? It's not like before when maybe you were going to an office or you were going somewhere external and you had that, maybe the commute to shake it off or whatever. But now with all of the technology, we're bringing it inside. So that as soon as you the screen opens, right? You're, you're visible and everyone else around you is visible. Mm-hmm. That's, that's so key. And I think, uh, I'm, I'm glad that you shared that um, concept. And we were talking earlier about how the uh, American Psycholo- uh, Psychiatry Association, APA, and, and all of the other med- AMA, American Medical Association, are now all of a sudden issuing apologies and declarations of, oh, yeah, right. Racial trauma is real. And I just wanted to hear your thoughts on, you know, what was, I guess, the impact of denying it? And now what's the potential, is there any potential benefit to it being acknowledged? There is absolutely benefit to it it being acknowledged. And it's interesting because, you know, one of the things that, one of the keys for emotional emancipation we talk about is that we look to the group for what is good and what is right and what is and what is um, um, correct. And what's interesting is that when you have a group of people who can identify and say something is wrong, they, this kind of trauma is having an effect on us. The problem is that yes, we might realize this, right? But if you're in an oppressive system, that is not even heard. It has to be validated by the oppressor, right? And so on the one hand, that is part of you know, the lie of white superiority and black inferiority it, it being expressed that what we know to be true about ourselves is not justified. And that means in this system, it is not funded until someone else says, you're right. Someone else gives the authority. Very interesting to bring money into the conversation, right? I'm, I might have mentioned, right, that I'm working on an app, chatbot app, you know, to support the mental health of women of color. And it is interesting, right? You spend a lot of time in conversations, pitch conversations, talking about the problem, right? But if you if you can't show that there is a problem, right, then is someone going to feel like that there's a need for a solution? Exactly. And, you know, the other, the other part of that is, you know, the dehumanization aspect of it. You know, that, um, (laughs) that even if, you know, someone, even if a group of, a group in in particular, the black community is saying, we need this help or racial trauma is a real problem that has physiological implications. To have black people devalued is to have everything about them devalued. So it's it's of no importance. I mean, if there, if this were happening in let's say the white community, I mean, there, it would be validated by one person, just the presence of it by one person. But you have a community of people who have been saying this for, yeah, I mean, CHN has been around for about 15 years. So you know, this is not new to us. And what's really interesting is I remember even with COVID, how you know, um, 
you know, black doctors could tell you about what, you know, how this is, how black, the black community is really susceptible and, and in what ways and what is unique about the black community and um, regarding our health that makes us really susceptible to this, to this disease or to this, you know, ailment in a fatalistic manner. But again, if you are a part of a community that is devalued, your voice isn't even heard. They don't even, they don't even consult you about your own people. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So thinking about the impacts of chronic stress, which then leads to the other conditions like heart disease and, and strokes, and like, then how that can lead to the comorbidity with COVID, right? Yeah, yes. And so, you know, what's interesting is, you know, it is, it is very good that this, like more people understand and are acknowledging, and I would say non-Black people are acknowledging what Blacks have, have known for more than a decade. That is very good, but it's still problematic because the voices and the experience and the brilliance and the competence of Black people still have to be seen as equal to the dominant society so that we don't have to wait another 15 or 20 years for you know, a, very, a very brutal demonstration of, of racism to then evoke the right response. Right, yes, so thinking of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, all of these incidents that have happened in the past year, right? None of them, unfortunately, are new, right? Obviously, the tragic loss of life of each individual, but the story of police brutality and violence yes. is not new. Yes, yes. And even the microaggressions, the things that you have to deal with on a daily basis. I mean, um, not just one time, but multiple times. I mean, that's the fact that you could walk into a store and, you know, be treated completely fine. But if you have to go to another store, you don't, you're not assured of that same treatment. And so you're constantly having to be on guard. Right, right. And then that constant sense of being on guard is where it, where it then leads into the chronic stress that we yes. were just speaking about. Yes. In one of your responses, or you just mentioned uh, emotional emancipation, and I wondered if you could expand on that a little bit so our listeners know what you are referring to. Yeah, so um, we have, so CHN offers two types of circles. One is the Ubuntu healing circles, which um, you might, that doesn't have a curriculum. It's, you know, just black people coming together and whoever is hosting that, um, they can sort of set the tone and decide the kinds of activities or topics that will be held or be participated in, in the Ubuntu healing circle. And um, any person who wants to, you know, have or start an Ubuntu healing circle can do that. The emotional emancipation circle is actually a curriculum that has been developed in partnership with the Association of Black Psychologists. It is grounded not only in African psychology, but spirituality and the African value, value-based system. And so that actually for, you know, you have to be a certified EEC facilitator. You get manuals and you, and you receive um, different um, documents and uh, materials for running your circle, but it's actually like an eight to 10 week program that every person walks through. You, know, you walk through all of the keys, each of the seven keys, and then we have an, an introduction and then a closing as well to kind of get you uh, to do a deep dive into the emotional emancipation process, but also we give you tools, breathing tools and psychological tools for how you might be able to continue to build resilience and strength, emotional resilience and emotional strength um, for liberation. Got it. And, and why is that emotional resilience and also, I guess, emotional strength, why are those key and important to liberation? Oh, wow. You know, the mind, the mind, body, and spirit are really one. And so and what's really fascinating is that that they believe there's a quote by Martin, the, um, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, that talks to the effect that we have to 
liberate ourselves emotionally, even if our body is free. So I mean, we might we might have made, and our ancestors might have made progress in the sense of we can, you know, ride the bus and we have integrated schools and, you know, we don't, we don't have four colored, you know, um, water fountains anymore and, you know, things like that. But you can still, you can be free in your physical body, but you can still, um, you can still have, uh, excuse me, you can still be chained emotionally and mentally and how you see yourself and even how you are living out your life. And honestly, if you are not emotionally free, can you really say you are free? Your mental health is essential to your overall health and well-being. Living a healthy lifestyle and including mental health tools to help you thrive may not seem easy but it can be achieved if you gradually make small changes and build on your successes. Seeking help to improve your mental health is a sign of strength, not weakness, and I would love to help you do it. You can visit my website, startwithincoaching.com. At the top, click Start Here so you can schedule your complimentary activation call. We can talk all about what's going on in your life right now, where you are in your mental health journey, and where you would like to be. So go to startwithincoaching.com, click start here to start your journey within. Exactly. Yeah, that's amazing. And when you were speaking about that, I was thinking how it is that sometimes we internalize, right? Negative perceptions and stereotypes, Mm -hmm. comments via microaggressions, right? So it's not always, sometimes it's coming, well, eventually it comes from within because you do internalize it, but it's it's taking those um, incorrect or negative external beliefs and then making them your own. Would you agree? Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that we've started to do at CHN is we are starting to work with high school students and we're in particularly in like private schools and we're being called in because because of the result of an incident, a racial incident. And what we're finding is that our children are growing up thinking that because they're in private school or, or they, you know, they come from well-to-do families, that somehow that isolates them. Somehow, like, somehow that, that does not affect them. And then, when, and then what happens is that they are blindsided when they realize that, oh, I am still considered of lesser value because of the melanin in my skin. Where I sit at in society does not change that. And to see them blindsided means that we as adults have not truly prepared them for the reality of that. And if we haven't prepared them, how are they going to navigate the world? And so they, they, they grew up with the, with the illusion um, that they are protected from all of this. But unfortunately, they're, they're not. Um, and they need to have, like, when you see our young people struggling with this, they're very young. And I mean, to be honest, this is not what they need to be struggling with. I mean, they're, they, they have so much life in front of them. Right now, they are supposed to be children. Supposed to be, they're supposed to be kids. I still remember the young black, um, the, the young, young girl who killed herself because she was, you know, called different names by her. Um, her, I think she was in elementary school, maybe 10 years old, who killed her, who um, took her own life because they were calling her different racial slurs and calling her ugly. And it's like, this is a 10 year old girl. She should be playing and frolicking and doing, you know, just being a girl. But our children have to deal with this. And so if they are not emotionally strong and they don't have that fortitude, we've already seen the results. They will take their own lives. 
our very lineage, our very, you know, how can we have a future if our children are being emotionally crushed? And so, you know, this is um, mental for mental and emotional fortitude is not only necessary for Black adults, Black males, and Black females, but where do our children get it from us? So it's, it, they need to be strong as well. Right. And it's so, it's so tragic to hear you speak of that and that, and that poor young girl. And it's, it, it's, it's so crushing to me, I think, because it's the loss of innocence of childhood. Right. And it, and I, I could imagine I, I'm not a parent, but I could imagine it's that I would feel like I would struggle with well, when is too soon, right? Because you don't want to, you don't want to bring it up if they haven't, but mm. had the experience, but then, right, like you're saying, having them be unprepared is, is a challenge as well. And I think it, it's very difficult, right? Because you, it's like how, it, it feels like dimming the light, right? Dimming the light of a child. And there's so much about the innocence of children and the curiosity and the wonder and the hope and the promise, right? And how is it that we don't ex- extinguish that light? You know, it's so, it's so interesting because there's a couple of things that come to mind. And um, actually at our last um, emotional lunch break, the, the, the brother who writes the poems for us, his son happened to just be in the background, just sort of listening in, right? And he, he began to share on behalf of his son because his son was talking to him, you know, as he's participating. And he's like, you know, my son, he, he gets, you know, he, he's mixed. So he's not white enough for the white community and he's not black enough for the black community. And so, you know, the healing, the, the healing within the black community, like that's the first start. Because if our children can see us strong, that's half the battle. If, I, if our children can see us practicing real, true, blackness and its glory and its love and its peace and its joy that's that's the first part that's the first part because you know the world is going to be the world but we've got to saturate them in love and joy and things like that the other thing that that's really fascinating to me and this is why at CHN we are we're very um we're very focused on like the African way, like, like really going back and, and understanding the, the African principles and the African system, as opposed to the Western system. We spoke to this, this um, expert in Ubuntu, and she talked about Ubuntu as a form of leadership. But when we talked to her um, on our podcast, she talked to us about how in the African system, children are immediately brought into the life of the village. And so they learn right from the beginning that they are important, they have responsibility, and that they are part of the working of the village. And so they have a sense of self and identity and role and place and belonging. And she said something so simple as, you know, a child, like a five-year-old or a six-year-old carrying their newborn brother or sister on their back is like the start is, is like one example of how the child understands that um, I am here, like my, I am important. I have to carry my sister or my daughter, my, my brother or my sister on my back. And I and um, I am a member, a functioning member of society. And then of course the connection that happens between the two um, as something so simple as being, you know, carrying their you know, their, their, their sister or their brother, but you might think that, you know, that young child carrying a newborn, that's like, that's so dangerous. And like, no, that's how we bring them into who we are as a people. And that again, gives them a foundation that they can then stand on in the face of the lie when they have, when they're having to deal with it. And I think that's the thing is that the, the, you know, it almost feels as though, and I, I've found this work, I found this to be true with the adults in the circles that I have been working in, is that your identity has, in a way, has been scooped out and has been replaced with what the lie says is appropriate. So we ask, like one of the exercises that we, we do is we just ask them, how do you define yourself? And to see the blanks is really astounding. To have people say, I, 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 I've never had to wrestle with that question. 
I know what I do in the Western perspective, but who am I? I get to define myself. How do I want to define myself or how do I value myself? And these two questions are so very important because I remind people that your value start that your your value your ancestors values started on auction blocks and so now we're asking you to redefine that and to sort of see like to see the the rustling the the blanks the confusion the 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 chaos the fog it's astounding i've often said that it feels sometimes like uh, as Black people, we're not given the privilege of self-reflection or self-discovery or even healing in many ways. It's that we have to claim that right to do that, right? That ability to not know and to discover and to wonder. It's sort of all of the self-actualization points, right? That, that yes. have, have almost been, like you said, scooped out or taken away. Yes, and, and this is what this, I mean, sort of circling back to like the circle itself, right? And one of the things that I, every week I tell, I tell those who show up, this is an act of defiance. Some of us are out in the streets and they're picketing. That is wonderful but simply coming together as black people in peace and in love, that too is an act of defiance. I mean, there was a reason why they never wanted us to come together. And what we're finding is that like, even in these small circles and what's coming out of us, the power of it. I mean, we read this poem about how we each carry 4,000 ancestors with us. And so like when you show up, it's not just you, it's 4,000. But when 10 of us show up, we've now got 40,000 people, spirits, beings, all that gift, all that intelligence, all that brilliance, all that creativity, all that knowledge, all that power. Very, very powerful, right? And then how is it that we channel that knowledge, wisdom, power, energy into our own self-creation and what we're gonna create for collective. Mm -hmm. And rewriting the narrative, right? We can put our energy toward like constantly pushing against, or we could put our energy towards building something that will overshadow that. Absolutely. And you've said it a couple of times, I just wanted to have it clearly articulated. When you say the lie, what is it to which you are referring? the lie of white superiority and black inferiority. And it is the lie, that particular lie on which white supremacy rests. It is that one lie. And I, the way that Anola describes it is like, like if you think about um, racism and you think about it as a ball of yarn, the lie of white superiority and black inferiority, they go hand in hand. If you begin to pull that, that will unravel everything else. It is that particular lie. Like it, you know, when you think about white supremacy, it's almost kind of like an abstract thing. Um, and it's, but when you get right to the heart of it, of it is a lie that whites are superior and blacks are inferior and that they need one another in order for that lie to exist. Got it. So when you start pulling at that thread, then it enables the rewriting of narratives, the Make dispelling of myths, the yeah. negating of stereotypes. Mm -hmm. I mean, because you come back to identity and you say you've been lied to. I was going to say, and I know we're talking, obviously, the focus here being um, for for Black mental health, but would you say that both sides are being lied to? Yes. Yes. I mean, that's we, we confront those lies. And in each one of our circles, mm -hmm. we confront them. Right. And I know I, I only asked the question because I feel like, again, we're focusing on sort of this within the context of Black mental health and healing circles that white people are also being lied to about their either supremacy, superiority, even if they themselves individually don't see themselves that way. Which is, I mean, forgive me for this, but like this is kind of also the power of that video um, regarding Mr. Floyd, right? Is that you could no longer lie. You could no longer be lied to. And you couldn't say, I didn't know, or you couldn't say it didn't exist. I mean, we, we witnessed somebody murdered. And it, I, mean, I mean, if you think about everything, 
I mean, it was such a, it's such a perfect example in a micro expression of what has been going on globally for centuries. Right. Right. Because if you think of the officer in, in his mind, presuming that, right, what I'm doing, this is, this is okay. This is acceptable to do this to this person. Right. So Mm -hmm. that sense of, and when you think of history, you know, we were talking earlier, right. Happened to Eric Garner here in New York has happened to, unfortunately, hundreds of thousands of people that we don't even know their names, unfortunately. Right. And and yet now this incident being visible and being videotaped and shown to the world is, I guess, one of those pulling of the threads, would you say? Exactly. I mean, it's the, I mean, just even their physical location, right? They embody the why of white superiority and black inferiority. But what's really chilling for me is that it's such, it's so natural. I mean, he had his hands in his pockets. So it's it's such a natural order, presumed to be a natural order. Yes, yeah. And through our conversation, I I also heard, I love to pick out sort of the phrases because the ones that stand out to me and we said it and then kind of glossed over it. Uh, Black joy, I've been reading and seeing a lot more, even in in media, people saying that, you know, while, you know, like you mentioned underground, I'm also watching that as well, but the series and and the coverage, right, not just focusing on trauma, but focusing on Black joy, what is your perspective on that? My my perspective is so interesting. Is it, my perspective is that actually joy is um, has an a dis, has a dismantling effect. Uh, and actually, it was a mentor. Uh, I have uh, one of my mentors is a, uh, a a black man who is pretty well established in his life, and we he was talking about um, what joy does in the midst of you might want to say you know people your enemies or people who who are working against you how it almost stuns them. Um, and, it, and he used the, the, the story from um, the Bible about Jericho and how the people who the praisers were sent forth. And because of the praises of the people, those walls came sort of tumbling down. And so he's like, that's the effect of joy. And so he goes, you know, when we as a people, Black people can still remain joyful and find that joy, not only within ourselves, but once again, when we come together. And then we find like you're sharing your joy, I'm sharing my joy. And now our joy is multiplying and they're now doing their jazz thing. We now have this, remember we've got 4,000 ancestors with each of us. And so the joy that they also have with us, in us, through us coming together, that becomes a power that can stun and stunt the effects of um, white, the, the lie of white superiority and black inferiority, it can stunt the, these, the, the things that we're having to deal with on a constant basis. And so joy isn't just simply just kind of like this, just sort of like uh, this sort of like nice garnish to have in life, but it's actually a powerful force to move and part the Red Sea so that we can go on to flourish. Right. Yeah. And from a collective perspective, and then each of us individually also being able to tap into our own joy, individual, yes. personal, familial, I guess, ancestral. I'm, I'm excited yes. now. I'm like the next time I'm going to like, wait, I got I to get 4,000 energy yeah. of joy within me. But like kidding aside though, right, that sense of being able to be more resilient. Um, although I did also see like another meme and I and I'll try to find that. Uh, quote. Someone on Twitter was saying something about not wanting to have to be resilient, which I thought was interesting because I think humans in general, right? Like resilience is a strength, but I was, I was getting what she was saying, right? Like she was saying things like, you know, I want life to be soft. I want life to be easy and not always having to feel like, you know, you're getting over something or overcoming mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, that's the other thing is, is, is even a shift in mentality. So when you think about, you know, it's in telling, like one of the things that I share with the group is that joy, like we, we were born in joy. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's not something that we have to kind of reach for because we lack, we already have it. We're like wellsprings of joy. I mean, the fact that our ancestors could sing while they were picking cotton, I mean, come on now, 
that, I mean, and some one woman said, yes, it is magic. It is our magic. It's like, yes, 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 yes. And one of the things that I really like, as people were sort of sharing like, what brings them joy, what you saw come forth was black humanity, black humanity. And it's like that, that you, that's the person that's going to go forth and flourish. Mm-hmm. It's that. Mm-hmm. And what's, and, you know, just really quickly, one of the things that, you know, you mentioned underground, um, it, it's been really fascinating. Um, some of the the lines that have stuck out to me, like in that episode, and there's one talking about the lie. Um, and there is one where there, you have this white man who is an abolib- abolitionist, but he is undercover. And then you have a, an owner and they're both at a, at a, um, an auction. And so they're talking back and forth. Um, the abolitionist, of course, is buying slaves in order to free them. And so um, the, they're talking back and forth. And the owner, the guy who um, is, you know, uh, a slave owner, he says, never let them think they are more than slaves. Never inflate their sense of self, their sense of who they are. And it's like, that's it. That's it. That is the lie. That is the effect of the lie. So when you think about the lie of white superiority and black inferiority, it's about keeping you from understanding the the true sense of who you are. And the reason why we have to stay apart is because once we come together, those ancestors are going to make sure you know who you are. Got it. Yeah, that's very profound. I was like thinking, I guess I'm gonna have to put spoiler alert in the show notes if someone hasn't seen <laughs> this show on Amazon Prime. But, I'm, like, I'm like wanting them to bring it back because it's like, it's, it's such a, a really great, 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 great. It was a really great production. Um, yes, yes. One of the questions that I ask all of my guests which I'm excited to hear you share your answer to, given all we've talked about is, what does start within mean to you? Start within means that the source is within. That if I want to, or if we want to change anything, we first have to go within to the source, that we are an embodiment of that very source, which is why you would start there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And now I'm thinking about it within the context of this energy and power that we carry within from from our families, from our ancestors Mm -hmm. as well. And that ability and and vulnerability, right? Because I I often say, right, you know, starting within isn't easy. I've definitely gone through periods in my life where I was like, yeah, no, I don't need to look in the mirror. That's good. I'm good. Right. You know, so that sense of being vulnerable also to um, discover that source or rediscover that source. And yeah, and to reconnect to it, because what's really fascinating is that what you'll find is the infinite you'll find an infinite wellspring. And what's really fascinating is that it takes tremendous courage and tremendous humility. But once you are able to do that, you'll find also a tremendous source of love. And that's your fuel and that's your engine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's love. I can just feel that. That's like radiating as you're saying that. It's like, it's like my, my solar plexus is just like warming up as you're talking there. Like, it's like, it's like right here, heart chakra solar plexus is like on fire right now. That's amazing. Wow. And so, so for people who are listening that perhaps want to learn more about CHN, how can they do so? Well, you can visit our website at www.communityhealingnet.org. And um, you can also, if you don't mind, me putting a little plug in for our podcast called Breathe, Baby, Breathe, The Fresh Air of African Values. 
Um, and then also we just started a YouTube series where we are interviewing builders, people who are emotional emancipation facilitators or are connected to our work, who are working literally in our community to build our community and to build this movement. And so YouTube, we are also on Instagram and then our website. And lastly, Breathe Baby Breathe podcast, which is on Apple, it's on Pandora, Spotify. You'll find us. I love it. I love it. Fellow podcast host. I love talking to fellow podcast hosts. It's exciting <laughs> to have these conversations. Yeah. And really yeah. to be able to spread the word, right, about, about this and continue to de- demystify and debunk myths and, and expose the lie and, and really be able to um, rise above. Yeah. So I thank you and, and Enola for the work that you're doing in, in all of this and, and all the people that you are touching through your work. Thank you very much for inviting us on to share. Uh, this has been a lovely, lovely, lovely uh, conversation. Yeah, thank you. So we'll be sure to share all of that information in the show notes. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm digging this vibe here. I'm going to take this vibe with me for the rest yeah. of the day. My yeah. like, my like healing ball of yes. like infinity. It feels yes. like, yeah. Oh wait, no, I'm feeling like, I think I'm channeling your participant, the poet. I'm like, wait, <laughs> things are coming over me. <laughs> yes. You've got 4,000 ancestors with you. Always. There were, were 8,000 on this podcast. <laughs> yes. All right. Now, uh-oh, uh-oh. Scared, scared of us now, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. If you enjoyed this episode and haven't already subscribed, You can do so on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. You also can connect with me on Instagram at coach underscore Colette for more inspiration on personal growth and wellness. Stay tuned for another episode of Coach Chat and get ready to start within to finish strong.